What do you fear? We've just been hearing about some of the things in the world that could cause us to fear. But what makes your legs tremble? What makes your stomach churn? What is it that you're most afraid of deep down? That may seem strange to talk about fear at the beginning of a book that in so many ways is actually a really positive part of the Bible. After all, Exodus is a rescue story, rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. Sorry if you've not read the book, I should have had a spoiler alert, but that's where we're going. And yet, fear, as we're going to see, has a big part to play in what's happening, both positively and negatively. Fear can be negative, but it can also be positive as well. Not all fear is bad, is it? I'm afraid of bungee jumping, and uh, I think that's a sensible fear. <laughs> I think the idea of throwing yourself off a bridge, you should be afraid of that, shouldn't you? There is a sort of right fear uh, to that. But in our passage, we'll see people who fear different things, and we'll see the different effects that those different fears have on their actions. We'll see God in action as well, driving the action from behind the scenes, if you like, like he was doing in the book of Esther, fulfilling his promises and bringing about these events. So let's dive right in on the bungee jumping way. Uh, But first of all, we see the fear of man in verses 1 to 14. Let me just read you a few verses from verse 8 down. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. So Joseph, the uh, technical dream coat guy, um, has died. But before he died, his family, his father, his brothers and their families had moved to Egypt to weather the famine in Canaan. But it ended up staying a little bit longer uh, than the famine, uh, 430 years to be precise. And in that time they've grown tremendously. 70 of them has become hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. That might sound pretty incredible, but it's not unreasonable at all. The equivalent for us would be going back to Tudor times. And if you think about certain people groups and how they've grown in that time, actually that's quite normal for populations to grow so massively quickly. And God has blessed his people. And just as he promised that Abraham, his children, now constituted a great nation, a great multitude. There's echoes, we're supposed to hear here, of the promises of Abraham, to Abraham back in Genesis. So Genesis 12, verse 2, it's on the back of your notice sheet. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. God is fulfilling that promise, making the nation great. But there are even echoes of Genesis 1, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And even Genesis 9, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And our passage tells us that they have now multiplied and they now fill the land. Or more literally, the earth. It's the same word, land and earth. God's purposes are finally coming about, which he foretold the creation, which he repeated to Noah, and which he promised through Abraham. But as God fulfills his promise for the world, not everyone is happy. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, sees the fulfilment of God's promises as a threat to his own power. God's kingdom is a threat to his kingdom. So what should Pharaoh do? Well, he should 
bow the knee, shouldn't he, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He should acknowledge that the Lord reigns. But instead, he does what we'll see people doing all the way through the Bible story and all the way through history. He responds by oppressing God's people. That's his response. He counsels dealing shrewdly with them. It's not the same Hebrew word, but with all the Genesis imagery going around, you can't help but think of the serpent, can you, in the Garden of Eden, who was more cunning than any of the other animals. What is this cunning, shrewd plan? Slavery. That's his first plan, slavery, forced labour. He makes them build two cities, Pithom and Ramses, for him. He puts taskmasters over them to whip them and abuse them. He's so fearful of what they might do, he decides to dominate them completely. He's so scared that they might mean an end to his power that he enslaves an entire people. And yet he can't bear to lose them. Do you see that in verse 10? What's he scared of? That they join our enemies, fight against us, and escape from the land. Actually, he fears that they'll escape. And this is before they're his slaves. He fears what the land might become without them. It reminds me of the great persecution that broke out against Protestants in France in the 17th century. So many Protestants fled the country that it devastated the country's economy. It took them generations to recover their strength after a chunk, a very productive chunk, of their population had disappeared. Perhaps this is what Pharaoh fears for the people. But fear he does. He fears what man can do to him. He fears the damage the Israelites could do to his empire. His whole mindset is dominated by what we probably call today xenophobia. He fears the foreigners. He fears what they might do to his nation. And this fear of man, this fear of the other, makes him insecure. As fickle as the whims of men and women. And sadly and devastatingly, he wasn't the first, he probably won't be the last, to oppress out of fear. We may look no further than our cousins over the pond who for generations supported slavery, partly out of fear of what the slaves would do if they were released. Their fears, it turns out, were totally unfounded. As it turns out, the slaves had more decency in America and sense of morality than the slave masters ever did. But Pharaoh here has none of that. He acts out of fear of man. He's scared of what might happen. But before we judge him too harshly, let's examine our own hearts. How often are our actions motivated by fear of man? What people might think. What people might say. What people might do. How often do we let that decide what we will or won't do for God? What other people think? How often does fear of man become our motivation rather than faith in God? How often are we subject to the whims and opinions of men and women rather than the word of God? But this mighty king, this God, so-called God of the Egyptians, is actually scared of the people. He fears the wrath of the people. But not so God and God's people. And so Pharaoh is contrasted, he's sort of set in against two other stories of God's people and their fears. So first of all, we see two women who are motivated by fear of God. Have a look with me again at verses 15 to 22. 
Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra, the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. These women here are not afraid of puny people. They're not even afraid of the most powerful man in the world at the time. Someone who, humanly speaking, held their very lives in his hands. Why were they afraid? Because they feared God more. If it came down to upsetting Pharaoh or upsetting God, there was no competition. They feared God more than they feared man, even the mighty Pharaoh himself. And so they are prepared to disobey Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's plan of oppression doesn't work. The people continue to multiply. And this is why he comes up with this solution. His own maths-based solution. They multiply, so he wants to subtract. He tells them to kill all the baby boys that are born, the midwives. Presumably, this is a secret command, otherwise no one would call the midwife. We'd all be spared that TV show then, wouldn't we? There we go. Um, that even uh, enough babies uh, died at birth at that time, that presumably they'd be able to get away with having a baby die as it was born. That was the idea, without it causing too much suspicion. It would be a long time before people would notice. And just the boys, because they would form the Hebrew army that Pharaoh was so scared of. And because if there's a generation without men then the girls will be forced to remain childless as they grow. Either that or marry Egyptians, and either way, the Israelites are over. But the midwives will not go along with this ethnic cleansing. They continue to deliver baby boys and baby girls alike. Why? Compassion? Care, maybe? But we're told, aren't we, the overriding factor is that they fear God. God who said back in Genesis 9 verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And here are two godly women who feared God, who rightly cared more what God said than what Pharaoh said. Honourable women. So much so that they get their names recorded in the story. Whereas the godless king doesn't even get his name mentioned it's as though he's saying like the world thinks that the Pharaoh is the big important person that we should know the name down of. But in God's mind, no, it's these wonderful women who refuse to do what Pharaoh says. In God's eyes, it's those women who honour and fear him that are far more worthy of mention. It makes it a nightmare today historically, but it makes a wonderful point theologically. But Pharaoh is not happy though. He calls in Shifra and Pua. Uh, what are you doing? And the midwives are ready with an answer. Hebrew women are quicker at giving birth than Egyptian ones. By the time we get there, the babies are already born. 
So it's obvious then it's not a stillborn baby, they can't do something afterwards. Now whether this is true or not, we're not told. Though it would make their job a bit redundant if they were never needed. They've always got there, oh done, brilliant. Maybe that would explain why there's two of them for a whole nation, who knows. But um, anyway, it's, it's possible again though that we've got hints of Genesis 1-3. to If you think about what the curse for women was, it was pain and difficulty in childbirth. Could it be that God has been blessing his people, working in reverse of the curse, that this pain and this uh, turmoil has been lessened in it? Even if what they say is a lie or a massaging of the truth, it's not for lying or doing that that they can get commended by God. It's for delivering the babies in both senses of the word. They rescue these little vulnerable lives, even at the risk of losing their own. And God honours them for it. They're granted families of their own because, as verse 21 repeats, to hammer it home, they feared God. And that fear of God enabled them to defy Pharaoh. That fear of God allowed them not to fear man. Sometimes we can forget what the scripture says, can't we? Proverbs 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We can forget that we're supposed to fear the Lord. Not a paralysing, disabling fear that drives us away from God, but a right and godly fear and awe of God, who C.S. Lewis famously put, is no tame lion. The fear that we're to have of God is not the fear that drives us away, but drives us to him. I'm fascinated by thunderstorms. We've had quite a few storms, haven't we, recently? But there's something about the sheer power and raw energy I'm always there at my window, sort of looking out, you know, and my heart skips a beat as the sky lights up. I count the seconds, I don't know if you do the same, until the mighty roar of thunder comes to work out how far away it is. And I can't stop, I have to sort of hang on to the next one, until it's all sort of gone away in the end. The sheer awesomeness of it draws me in. There's something about that amazing power that's sort of scary, but it's sort of nice as well. On the other hand, if I were out in a thunderstorm, in an open space, and a flash of lightning struck the ground next to me, then that would be fear of a totally different kind. That would set me running away from the storm, or sort of stood there paralysed by the <coughs> So there's a right fear that we can have as believers, and that's the first one, the fear that draws us into God. A fear that causes us to drop all else and focus on the one we are to fear. A fear that enables us to be unafraid of our all else. A fear that causes us to live for God alone. And it's not just supposed to be an Old Testament thing. Sometimes you get this idea of fear is sort of Old Testament, but not New Testament. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10 verse 28, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We don't have a tame God. He's a dangerous God, especially if we're playing around with sin. And there's a right fear that we're to have of him. But Pharaoh's not done. There's a a place for that second kind of fear now with, with him. He's getting more scared. He goes public now with his plan. No more secret deals with midwives. Verse 22, Pharaoh now commands all his people... Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. That means the whole population now 
is mobilised to wipe out the Israelites, whatever the midwives do. But the midwives, as we'll see, are not the only ones who will stand up to Pharaoh. There are others too who are prepared to, to defy Pharaoh. And our second group of people we see, on the flip side of that, have no fear of Pharaoh. Let me read to you verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took a, a, as a wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him. Uh, she, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. A Levite woman gives birth to a child and hides him for three months. Now I can imagine having had children myself, that's no easy job. Babies scream, don't they? Babies smell. But why does she do it? Why does she go through that risk? Look at her child, certainly. But in Hebrews 11, we're given more of an insight. Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not frightened by Pharaoh. In that sense, they followed that same pattern as the midwives. They feared God more than man. So look for their child, yes, but something more. And there's actually something in that phrase. She saw that he was a fine child. It's not that she thought that he was cute. All parents think their children are cute, don't they? Even when they blatantly aren't are all cute. Of course, all the ones that I've met in church are obviously very cute. <laughs> But what we've got there is not just a statement about cuteness. The phrase is almost identical to Genesis 1, on what God says of his creation. It literally reads, when she saw that it was good. That's literally what it says. It's sort of harking us back to creation, to God's big miracle there. Here is a new beginning. Here is a new creation. Something about this child prompts that in her. In Hebrews, the phrase is picked up in Greek. And there the word for good is uh, aseos, which means good, but it also means a city dweller, meaning that Moses belonged to a city. And in Hebrews, that seems to be linked to the city to come, the new Jerusalem that he's talking about in chapter 11. In Acts 7, verse 20, Stephen tells us that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. What we can make out from these statements, all sorts of slightly different points with each one, but that something special is going on here. And Moses' mother was probably in some way aware of this, that something special was happening. But even for her, in the end, it becomes impossible for her to hide him any longer. So she makes for him a little boat. Literally, an ark. Same word is used for Noah's ark, back in Genesis. And she covers it in bitumen and pitch. Which, if you think about the lack of detail for like most of Moses' life we're going to get. That's quite a lot of detail to give you about the boats. And it's supposed to make you sort of think of Noah's Ark, which was covered inside and out with pitch. She places him in this little rescue boat and puts him on the river Nile, among the reeds. And in some way, she sort of fulfills the demands of Pharaoh, doesn't she? After all, he demanded that all male children be thrown in the river Nile. 
And some think this is what he had in mind all along, that they would sort of, every one of these would be put in boats and float along the river. But the word used in chapter 1 is really throw, cast, hurl, fling. It's what Moses will do to the stone tablets when he breaks them on the ground, he throws them down. It's not a gentle word. But it's also in opposition to what the daughters were to have done to them, which was they were to be let live. So the intention really does seem that he would drown them, but she's sort of going along with the, the, the form of it at least, putting him in the Nile. Moses' mother places him in the Nile in an ark, a reminder of God's salvation and faithfulness to his people. And God is faithful, and he does save his people. Moses' sister Miriam, though, uh, who is, is named, not named here, but it's Miriam, watches on to see what's going to happen, sort of building the tension as we go through. It's a bit of an aside, but to build the tension a bit more, it's worthy to note, especially at this point, with it being International Women's Week, it was International Women's Day, have you noticed that it's two women that are actually at the heart of the action here? Moses has a father, Amram, and an older brother, Aaron. But they're absent in the story. It's the women taking the slack, doing the hiding, doing the watching. If you think about the first story, it was the midwives, two of them that were doing the action. We should never fall into the trap of thinking that women are bit parts in God's plan. Or that because our, uh, because our roles as men and women are different, that women have a lesser part to play. Not at all. Men and women are both equal before God. Men and women are both used by God. And humanly speaking, the church would fall apart without women. It's just a fact. And men, we need to make sure that we value the women in our church. And we don't pigeonhole them. I'm glad at church that we have women and men in the kitchen afterwards. I'm glad that we have women and men leading the children's groups. That women and men pray up front. That women and men read the Bible from the front. That it's not just men who do setup. And yes, scripture places a restriction on women preaching and teaching to mixed congregations. But I'm proud that we have women teaching one-to-one, far more than the men do, it must be said. And I'm proud that we have women preaching at women's events, like Stirrup, which we run around Christmas time. So let's not underestimate all the little women. I mean, in our passage, where are the men here standing up to the genocide? If you think back to Esther, which I haven't really thought of the fact that we're going to be doing that, where were, where were the men in Esther that were standing up? What are men doing while the women are getting on and protecting their families? Where are the men who are unafraid of Pharaoh's edict, who fear God more than Pharaoh? They're sort of absent in our story, aren't they? Now, I don't want to engage in bloke bashing. I'm a bloke after all. <laughs> but sometimes, guys, we need to step up a little more, don't we? It's not okay to just let the women get on and do everything. Okay, have a little aside there, back to the story. <laughs> Now enter another woman that God uses to save the day. Have a look at verses 5 to 10. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while she saw her young women walked along, uh, sorry, while the young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women and, and took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, um, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. 
So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She gave him the name Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Pharaoh's daughter and her young women come down to bathe in the river. Now, if you don't know the story, you might be tempted to think that this is it for them. This is curtains for Moses. I mean, this is Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's the one that gave the edict. Of all the people that you don't want to find, this little baby, it's somebody in Pharaoh's family, isn't it? But she finds the basket, opens it up, and the baby starts crying. And it's not the case of mistaken identity like it is in the Prince of Egypt. She realises straight away that the child is an Israelite. Whilst Esther was able to hide because she was a, a woman, uh, actually boys would have something done to their vital organs at eight days old that would mean that you could recognise straight away that this little boy was Jewish or Israelite. <coughs> but instead of throwing him into the river, as her own father had commanded, she adopts him. <coughs> and what follows leaves us in no doubt that God is totally behind what is going on. Miriam, Moses' sister, suggests to Pharaoh's daughter that she provide a nurse for her. Now, I didn't really get my head around this uh, until I had kids, but the child would still be on breast milk at this point, so would actually need somebody to provide that. And unless Pharaoh's daughter had recently had a baby, she wouldn't be able to help. So enter in with a genius suggestion. Oh, I know a woman who up until very, very recently was breastfeeding a child. And of course, Miriam goes and gets her mum. And Pharaoh's daughter agrees to pay her to be the child's wet nurse. Moses is now not only safe, but he's with his family, and Pharaoh's family are paying them to keep him. That's what's happened. Talk about plundering the Egyptians, which they're going to do, yeah? But of course the day comes when Moses is weaned, or perhaps maybe a little while after that, and he must leave and become the son of Pharaoh's daughter. She names him Moses, which sounds like an Hebrew drawn out. But of course, it's not the only drawing out that's going on, is it? God is going to use that child to draw his people out of the land. His name is prophetic in that sense. The time has come to draw his people out. So this is the turning point in history for them. This is the changing of the times. This is the beginning of the end for Pharaoh. His attempts to oppress had landed his worst enemy in his own palace. That's what's happened. And he's paying for his board and lodging and education. God is so powerful, is such an incredible engineer, that he's engineered history to bring this about. Moses just so happens to be born at this time. They just so happen to leave him in the right place on the river. Pharaoh's daughter just so happens to be bathing in the right place at the right time. She just so happens to be moved by pity rather than by anger or annoyance. And all this is happening 80 years before God will rescue his people. Thought about that? 80 years later, God will rescue his people through this child. But God is setting this all in action now. And Pharaoh's very attempts to destroy God's people... God has turned that to sow the seeds of his dynasty's destruction. Is it any wonder that the lesson is that we should fear God? That we should stand back in awe at this incredible God? And if that wasn't enough, God was also at the same time using this to paint a picture of what was to come. An even greater rescue. 
One that would begin with a king concerned about the number of people in his realm. One that would involve a foreign king ordering the destruction of Israelite baby boys because of a threat to his power. One that would see Egypt itself become a refuge for that child as it was in the end for Moses. I'm speaking of course of the Lord Jesus, the greater Moses, the greater rescuer. Over a thousand years before, here is God painting a picture of that greater rescuer. All unbeknownst to the people involved. All this God is working. How powerful is our God? How patient is our God to do that so far in advance? How can we not be astounded that he should turn the gears of history to bring about his purposes to glorify his son? We should fear this God. Because there's no standing against him, is there, when he can do that? We should stand in awe of him. In what chance does Pharaoh stand? What chance does anyone stand when God turns their very efforts to destroy him and his people back on their own heads? It reminds me of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage when people is plotting vain? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That is our God. That is who he's revealing himself to be in our story. This incredible one who will stand up to Pharaoh. And his people are given the courage to stand up to Pharaoh in the light of that. So what do you fear? Well, whatever you fear, fear God more. Let him make your legs tremble. Fear him. Let him make your stomach churn. Let that right fear spur you into brave action, like it does with the people in our story. Let that fear of God alone help you stand up for others, the voiceless, the oppressed. Let that fear of God alone help you speak for our Heavenly Father when others are silent. Let that fear of God alone help you stand in awe of our wonderful God. Let's pray. Father God, when we read an account like this, Father, we cannot help but be astounded at your incredible power and wisdom. Father, we're we're just taken aback with the way that you can turn history, Father, to bring about your purposes. Father, thank you for the way that you did that with Moses. Father, thank you for the way that you still do that today. Father, help us to stand in awe of you. Help us to have that right fear of you that draws us in rather than pushes us away. And Father, help us to kiss the Son and Father, worship and honour him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.